Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio with big ups to the one and only RZA for our dope theme music. It was less than two months ago when America was brimming with optimism that the country had turned the corner on COVID-19 and was well on its way to beating the pandemic into submission. On July 4th, the seven-day average for new coronavirus infections stood at 12,879, one of the lowest rates since the start of the pandemic. On the South Lawn of the White House that day, President Biden declared that, quote, today we are closer than ever to declaring our independence from a deadly virus, unquote. And although he noted that the battle wasn't over, he went on to say, quote, we've gained the upper hand against the virus. We can live our lives. Our kids can go back to school. Our economy is roaring back, unquote. Well, that was then, and this is now, and now is looking <laughs> pretty shitty, frankly. With the Delta variant rampaging across much of the country, the seven-day case average is north of 140,000, deaths at nearly 1,000 a day, tens of thousands of school children already in quarantine. In August, stories of breakthrough cases, double vaccinated people popping up all the time, and the Biden administration scrambling to adopt new measures to get a grip on a pandemic that no one any longer considers close to being under control. Last time we talked COVID on this podcast was back in April, and given the unnerving state of play, we thought it was high time to return to the topic with a public health expert you have almost certainly seen on TV, propounding grim scenarios that have also turned out with alarming frequency to be entirely, if unfortunately, accurate. The grimness has led some people to refer to our guest today as Dr. Doom, but because of how often he's been right, I will just stick with Dr. Michael Osterholm. The state of the COVID-19 pandemic is at best confusing and one that surely offers us very substantial challenges going forward. Mike Osterholm is a Regents Professor and McKnight Presidential Endowed Chair in Public Health and the Director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, all at the University of Minnesota. In the course of his long and illustrious career as an epidemiologist, he has served in various roles in the Minnesota Department of Health as the principal investigator and director of the National Institutes of Health-supported Minnesota Center for Excellence in Influenza Research and Surveillance, as an advisor to the past five presidential administrations, including most recently serving on President-elect Biden's COVID advisory board during the transition. In other words, Mike Osterholm knows his shit. His reputation as Dr. Doom took root in early March 2020, just before COVID took over all of our lives, when he appeared on Joe Rogan's podcast and predicted that the pandemic would last at least 18 months and kill at least 480,000 people in the United States. Osterholm was derided as a lunatic alarmist, and to be fair, his forecast was considerably off, since as of today, more than 627,000 Americans have in fact died from COVID-19. Throughout the pandemic, whenever there has been a wave of optimism about defeating the virus, one of Osterholm's constant refrains has been that, although we may think we are done or nearly done with COVID, COVID isn't nearly done with us. He has been mocked and sometimes shunted off TV for saying that too. But again, he has proven to be spot on over and over and over again. All of which is why I wanted so badly to talk to Mike Osterholm today about the past, present, and future of COVID-19, about how bad the Delta variant is and why about what our leaders have fucked up on the road to now and how we might avoid those mistakes in the future, about the new tactics announced by the Biden administration last week, from booster shots for the already vaccinated to using the federal government's power to keep governors from getting in the way of masking in classrooms and whether those measures go far enough, 
about what can and should be done about the horrifyingly low rates of vaccination in many places around the world and how countries with billions of unvaccinated citizens are basically petri dishes for dangerous new variants and about just how scared we should be about such variants arising that are even worse than Delta, and in particular, the nightmare scenario of a variant emerging that is both highly infectious and entirely resistant to our current vaccines. Osterholm and I covered all that ground and more. His answers to my questions are often disquieting. They don't call him Dr. Doom for nothing, but because of his track record, there is no ignoring Mike Osterholm, or at least there should be no ignoring him unless you're into the idea of sticking your head in the sand and waiting for the virus to come and get you. So if you, like me, prefer to take an alternate path, believing that knowledge is power and facing up to hard truths is the only way we're ever going to put this nightmare in our rearview mirrors, pour yourself a very stiff drink and settle in for a bracing, sometimes scary, but also essential and at times even hopeful excursion into a realm that has plenty of both hell and high water. The threat of the Delta virus remains real, but we are prepared. We have the tools. We can do this. So all those of you who are unvaccinated, please get vaccinated for yourself and for your loved ones, your neighborhood and for your community. And to the rest of America, this is no time to let our guard down. We just need to finish the job with science, with facts and with confidence. And together, as the United States of America, we'll get this done. So that's Joe Biden last week in the East Room of the White House, giving us another of what become a kind of unending string of updates about where COVID stands and announcing some new policy measures. We are here today on Hell and High Water with Dr. Michael Osterholm. Mike, it's great to see you. Thank you for taking the time. Thanks, John. Good to be with you. I want to start at 30,000 feet around that man, Joe Biden, who you served on the COVID transition advisory board for a few months there from November to January, I believe. And now you're back on the outside, able to speak truth to power or be able to lie to power either way, whatever you prefer. (laughs) How do you think he's doing on this? Well, let me put this into some perspective. I've served roles now in the last five presidential administrations. I've always been nonpartisan. I'm just a, a science guy that's here to help. And for the first time in my public health career, I actually believe we have a vaccinator in chief, much like we saw during the days of polio. And from that perspective, I don't think there's anything more that we could ask of this president in terms of trying to get America vaccinated to protect them against this pandemic. Now, the question comes up, are there things from an administration standpoint we can do better, that we need to do more of? And the answer is absolutely yes. But I think that overall, his heart and soul as a president of the United States is real. It's not a Democrat. It's not a Republican perspective when it comes to this virus. From my standpoint, it's about how to save lives. And so from that perspective, I feel really very positive about what he's been doing. That's obviously fair. And, you know, (laughs) all of those comments you just made stand in stark opposition to what most people would say about the previous president, which we'll talk about in a minute. No one doubts that the administration did an incredible job rolling out the vaccines in the first few months, that there was a huge logistical challenge, infrastructure challenge, distribution challenge. You know, the way they've handled the vaccines has been pretty incredible. Do you think on messaging and on preparing the country for and dealing with the challenges of the Delta variant and future variants to come, do you grade him as an A? Is he done as well as you think he could have done? Or are there things you would have said, all the things you just said that were complimentary, but I would have advised X, Y, or Z to make this performance just a little better? Well, you know, the real challenge in trying to respond to this pandemic in the United States 
can in some ways be summarized by what those of us who have been in the business for as long as we have have experienced ourselves. What I mean by that, you know, I've been working on this deal with infectious diseases for 46 years. And for the first time in my career, I've received death threats. I've received many, many very vile, vile communications. Yeah. And it's a situation where this isn't just about science. And this isn't just about a virus. This is about something much deeper than that. And I don't care who the president is. I don't care who the emperor is. I don't care who the benevolent dictator is. When you have that kind of underpinning to what you're trying to do, you've got a real hell of a challenge. And so I think that this administration basically looked at the vaccine issue from a two-point perspective. And something, a title I had in one of my podcasts last fall, actually, before vaccine was available, called The Last Mile, The Last Inch. What you just referred to with The Last Mile was really remarkable what they did to scale up vaccine production. He, as an administration, inherited these vaccines, but they weren't really made for prime time manufacturing. And I think the administration did a tremendous amount of work to streamline that, to actually look at where were the weakest links in the manufacturing chain and how to fix those. That's the last mile. The last inch was getting the needle in the arm. And I don't think anyone, anyone fully understands yet the depth of resistance and why it happens to getting that done. Right. And so I think short of a legal mandate that people would otherwise be imprisoned or whatever to get vaccinated, we have real challenges. And the administration basically, I think, is attempting now to address those issues in ways they hadn't before. I think that they thought that if we just talked about it enough and people saw enough information about the vaccine that they would in fact embrace it. If anything, that has hardened. It's not gotten easier. Yeah. There are now, I think, three groups in this country. We used to think of two groups. The vaccine affirmative, couldn't wait to get their vaccine for their kids, for themselves, and the vaccine hesitant. People that wouldn't get it, anti-vaxxers that were really against it, but many would come to the point of getting it. Now we have a third group, the vaccine hostile. This is a group that will actually actively go out of their way to make it difficult for people to get a vaccine. And so I think in this case, I don't have any magic pixie dust answers for the administration other than to say, these are the things you just need to keep hitting home and hitting home and tell the public the truth. The truth is this is a highly infectious virus that if you don't get vaccinated, you will know a COVID-related outcome one way or the other. So the three things that Biden last week did, one was to say, we think everybody who's been vaccinated should get booster shots. The second was to use the government leverage on nursing homes to not mandate a vaccine, but to make it pretty hard to prove back nursing home. People work in nursing homes not to get a vaccine. And the third, which I want to put as a side, because that gets into a lot of the politics of this, is to also use the power of the federal government to try to put pressure on governors who are behaving in ways that are deleterious to public health specifically with respect to education systems and schools. I want to ask you about booster shots just because it's the thing that's on everybody's mind right now. And I have two questions, but the first is this. These vaccines are kind of miraculous, right? You know, everyone tells you, everyone who knows stuff about this, which obviously I'm not an expert, says these are incredibly effective vaccines, number one. Number two, they were developed with astonishing speed and they're really safe. Does the fact that we're talking about booster shots this soon tell us something about the efficacy of them that maybe as miraculous as they are on the the dimensions that I just listed, that having to get boosted this quickly speaks to maybe a little bit that these vaccines are not quite as effective or as durable as we had all hoped. 
Well, let me unpack a couple of different issues here that I think are really important to distinguish. First of all, let's talk about the difference between a prime series and a booster dose. And that's important because we all started out with the mRNA vaccines, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines, with the two-dose approach. Of course, the J&J was the one-vaccine dose approach. When that was all put together as an approach, we didn't have good information about what happens at three, five, six, 10, 12 months, because we're in the middle of a crisis. Right. So the immediate assessment of those vaccines was to find out in the short term, using these two dosing approaches, can we in fact develop antibody to the virus and more importantly, other aspects of the immune system and then gain protection. And the vaccines did that very well with one exception. And that was in the immune compromised, or in some cases, people we'd call immune senescence, people who are elderly and frail. Right. And so those people never really did develop a full response. And we now have data supporting that a third dose will actually get them over the finish line to have a response. So I don't want anyone to confuse the third dose of what was recommended last week for the immune compromised as a booster. It's not. It's the prime series, just like in children, where we see right. three and four doses of vaccine needed before they finally have the appropriate full response. The booster dose applies to individuals who have already been vaccinated, and now we're six, eight, 10 months out. Well, remember, we didn't have six, eight, or 10 months worth of research data on these vaccines at the time that they were approved. And that's an important caveat to say, but there was no evidence at all of a safety signal. Those happened early in the vaccination process. And from that perspective, we handled those. I don't want anyone to misinterpret this comment as somehow, oh my, don't get vaccinated because there's still more to come. Right. But now we're learning how to use the vaccines, meaning what is the right dosage schedule? Is it two to three weeks, four weeks, or is it maybe 10 weeks between doses? We're learning at what point is the antibody drift downwards to the point of where that and the other part of the immune system doesn't render full protection. And among who? Is it only among immune compromised? If you look today, the people that we've had the most breakthroughs for, which we have serious illness, has been those who are much older and have immune compromising conditions. And so at this point, I can't say that I would have recommended anybody wait for three years to get all these data to optimize how the vaccine's used. Well, right. in the meantime, millions of people die. And so what we have to understand is we're kind of building this plane at 30,000 feet as we're flying, not around safety, but around how to best use the vaccines. And that's what's happening with the booster doses. And so I think that you're going to see over the course of the next three to five weeks, more data coming out that basically say for most people, these vaccines are very, very effective in reducing serious illness, hospitalizations, and deaths without a booster. For some, those are likely going to be necessary. And trying to figure that out is what I call corrected science. Right. And that's important because most people think of it as misinformation. You know, you didn't really know what you were doing. And in fact, no, this is science at its best. <laughs> we learn something, we apply it. Yeah. We learn more, we apply it. And so that's how I see the boosters. I don't see this as a failure of the vaccines. I see it as us learning how to best use them. Yeah, it's a core component of every kind of scientific endeavor, right, is iteration. And you learn and modify according to what you learn. There was a time though when people thought that the sun 
revolved around the earth as opposed to the other. So, you know, <laughs> we adjusted after that. People thought that when you got to the end of my continent, that was the end of the world. It was not. Other question I have to ask you about the booster shots is this critique from like WHO and a bunch of outside groups, NGOs and humanitarian groups that are looking at the vaccination rates around the world. Something you've talked a lot about in your podcast and in the, your commentary, things you've written over the course of the last months, which says, hey, the world is way behind and forget about altruism and humanitarianism. We need to get the rest of the world vaccinated if we do not want the rest of the world to be a petri dish for variants. And so the critique now is how can you, and I think the very colorful phrase of the doctors of the WHO is you're basically giving life preservers to people who are already in lifeboats when the rest of the world is drowning. And you know, Joe Biden comes back and says, well, that's not true. We give out a lot of doses. We give more doses than anybody else to the rest of the world, which is a fact. But right now, Vaccine doses is a finite supply. And so the logic kind of breaks down at some point. You could be doing more for the rest of the world if you wanted to. So I guess the question to you, Mike, is what do you make of that argument? Are we getting the balance right? Is it more important for us to all get booster shots than to focus on distributing doses to people who are currently unvaccinated around the world? Yeah, well, you know, I wish right now we had somebody by the name of Solomon who was in charge <laughs> of all of this. Okay. And that would sure help. Yeah. You know, one of the things we have to look at carefully here is do we accomplish protecting the population against severe illness and hospitalizations? And does that wane over time? Because if in fact, we then see people becoming infected, having serious illness and dying. What's the difference whether that happens after having had an initial series and postponing that, or, you know, basically it doesn't happen. And so I think the challenge we have is I can very much support an approach where a booster dose is necessary if in fact it means the difference between bad challenges with death, dying, hospitalization, severe illness. And I think that's the question that hasn't been answered yet. If we're merely just trying to eliminate milder illnesses and that's all we really get with the booster dose, then you could make the case straightforward. The real challenge is getting the vaccine to the rest of the world. And so we don't have the data to say that yet. That's one of the problems. I think that if anything, I think the administration got ahead of its headlights is the fact that the studies I've seen to date surely don't provide any confirmatory information that there's a big increase or even a substantial increase in the number of people getting serious illness and dying. And if that were the case, then I think that the booster dose is most appropriate because it's going to be necessary even in the rest of the world. But I do think that it should put a highlight emphasis right now on we've got to get vaccine to the rest of the world. We need a Manhattan Project on steroids to get vaccine manufactured. We need a whole lot of Marshall plans to get countries to be able to deliver the vaccine. Right. And as you so well noted uh, just now, if we don't do that, the variants are going to come spinning out of those countries. That's where the very protection of our vaccine right now is ground zero. Right. The argument's going to have to be made not in humanitarian or altruistic terms, but in terms of unless we solve the rest of the world, we're just going to keep getting hit with deltas and worse. We'll get to that at the end of the podcast because I do want to talk about the future and what's coming down the pike. But let's stay focused on Joe Biden for one more second. And I want to play a little sound where he talked about the element of the change in policy, his directive to the Department of Education related to what some governors are doing. And then right after that, I want to play Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida's response to it a few hours later on that network that shall not be named on this program. So let's play Joe Biden talking about that and then place DeSantis right after that. Today, I'm directing the Secretary of Education, an educator himself, to take additional steps to protect our children. This includes using all of his oversight authorities and legal action, if appropriate, against governors who are trying to block 
and intimidate local school officials and educators. And I've, as I've said before, if you aren't going to fight COVID-19, at least get out of the way of everyone else who's trying. You know, we're not going to sit by as governors try to block and intimidate educators protecting our children. Speaking of those governors, here comes Rod DeSantis. He is obsessed with having the government force kindergartners to wear masks all day in school. In Florida, we believe that that's the parents' decision. Joe Biden thinks the federal government should come in and overrule the parents and force these young kids to wear these masks. And you got to wonder, where are your priorities that you're so obsessed with this issue and so obsessed with taking away parents' rights and you're letting Afghanistan burn, our border burn, and so many other things in our country fall to pieces? So the situation's bad in Florida, Mike, as you know, and the situation's bad in a lot of places when it comes to schools. There was just a story, 20,000 kids in Mississippi are already in quarantine after one week of school. And yet you've got governors like Governor Sanders who's threatening to take away the pay of educators who want to have masks in their classroom. So what do you make of that back and forth that we just heard and what it represents, which is some of the challenges, not just that Joe Biden faces, but that the country faces as we head back to school and the Delta variant is still at large and there are governors who are, for either political reasons or ideological reasons or whatever other reasons, doing things that no sane scientist would recommend. Well, let me break it down into two separate buckets. I think it's much easier to understand what we're at in that regard. The first bucket is, what is the risk to kids? We, as a, a general public, are confused about that because for the first eight to 10 months of the pandemic, we kept telling people, they look at kids are just not getting infected very often. When they do, they just don't get that sick in a hole and they don't seem to transmit the virus to others, including other kids or to their family members. Well, when the Alpha variant first appeared in states like Minnesota in March and April, we saw tremendous increases in transmission in kids. And now Delta is that on steroids. The Delta virus is very readily transmitted by kids to kids from kids and they get sick. They get really sick. Right now, most of the pediatric intensive care beds in this country are filled between both COVID and respiratory syncytial virus. It's a nightmare right here in Minnesota. Right now we're on divert status for our pediatric intensive care beds. And so we do have to understand this is a very serious challenge in kids. And while they still don't get in terms of numbers, more severe illnesses than those who are older, there's just many more of them. And so from that perspective, let's make it very clear, pediatric COVID is a huge challenge. Yep. Now, what do we do about it? Well, let me just paint this picture in a slightly different way. What if this was drug-resistant TB and we knew that we could slow down transmission by having individuals wear masks? Would anybody be against that? If you're a parent, and you know that your child is going to drive home drunk tonight, would you not say from a community standpoint, there's a legitimate issue where someone should take control of that and not let it happen? And so I think that the issue now is that government has no legitimate role in assuring the community's health. And in this case, it's not just about one child. One child is someone who can get infected, but more importantly, they can also infect others. And so I think from that perspective, there is every legitimate public health reason for us to make it possible for kids to be as protected as possible in schools. We have everyone who wants kids in school today. What we have to understand is with that comes the responsibility to protect them. And we're not doing a good job of that at all. So I think that the issue of masking, the issue of applying all the other recommendations that we can is really, really important. 
And I think that the community issues override any individual issues at this point. And so from that perspective, I find that what the administration is doing is right at where we should be. I think that the a concept of what the governor is promoting right now is divisive politics. And again, that's said from someone who has served roles in the last five presidential administrations. Right. You know, I'm not partisan. Yes, I'm just not. telling it like it is. A uh, guy who worked for Tommy Thompson, if I remember right, I at did. HHS back in the Bush administration. So we're not talking about some commie pinko left-wing demagogue here in Mike Osterholm. I want to ask you one last question before we take a quick break, and that relates to your home state, where you have the Minnesota State Fair coming up soon, I read, at the end of the month, August 26th to September 6th, where there's no mask mandate at the fair and there's no proof of vaccination nor a, a proof of negative test. I think of Minnesota as an enlightened place, and I have a lot of friends in Minnesota. love Minnesota as a state, one of my favorite places in that part of the country. Minneapolis in particular, fantastic city, home of Prince Rogers Nelson and the, one of the great clubs in the history of music, Glam Slam. Has Minnesota gone off the rails here, or does that make sense to you that you have a Minnesota State Fair without any of those protections under the current circumstances in which we live? Well, I have to say that we're part of a national response to this issue. There's a national mindset. And when people decided last spring and early summer, we're done. Plans were put in place to hold large concerts in New York City, yep. to hold state fairs around the country, to have a big bike rally in Sturgis, South Dakota, and I could go down the list. As a nation, we're done with the virus. As you know, unfortunately, the virus is not done with us. And what has really been challenging with Delta, and I think really is illustrative of just what the future holds for us, at least in the short term, is over a month and a half ago, there was a very large outdoor festival in Utrecht, Netherlands. 20,000 people came, but they had to show proof of vaccination and or having antibody studies done showing they were protected. Out of those 20,000 people at the outdoor fair, 1,000 got infected. Again, we had breakthroughs with the vaccine, not nearly the number of severe illnesses we'd expect to see with 1,000 infections, but yet infectious people. Look at what happened at the NBA post-victory celebration that was held in Milwaukee the day after the Bucks won the championship. There are now over 500 cases associated with that outdoor event. Right. I could go on and keep listing those, but probably the most important one I can give you is what's happened in Minnesota, which has one of the most enlightened and effective state health departments in the country. From the beginning of the pandemic through the end of June this year, there were four times where we were able to show clear and compelling evidence of outdoor-related transmission. People are going to one outdoor concert standing in a similar area with each other, not knowing each other, right. but there was transmission of the virus in that outdoor setting. We had four such outbreaks during the duration of the pandemic to June 30th. In the month of July, we had nine alone, and that number is going up this month substantially. And so what this is really pointing out is that this outdoor air type transmission just gives you a sense of how infectious this virus is. Yeah. So do I worry about the fair? Absolutely I do. Do I worry about all these events? I'm wondering what's gonna happen over the next three to 10 days here in Minnesota from all the people returning from Sturgis this past week. Yeah. And I worry about the concert in New York City. So I think as a nation, we have finished with the virus long before it finished with us. And I think that you couldn't be an elected official today to say, close down the state fair. The public wouldn't stand for it, yeah. but the public will pay a price. And I think we're going to see more of these super spreading events with these outdoor events. And all we can do is continue to urge people, please, if you do go, wear respiratory protection, wear an N95, know that if you're indoors and you're in crowds, that's a higher risk than being outdoors, but outdoors is not perfectly safe. And beyond that, I don't know what else we can do.
Well, the important takeaways there, I mean, look, I'll put it in my own vernacular, which is that Delta is a beast, number one. And number two, the virus isn't done with us. Wasn't done with us when some people said that we were done with the virus. And one of those people was Joe Biden. So I want to actually get to that after on the other side of the break. We're going to take a break right now. We'll come back and we'll do a little historical discussion here with Mike Osterholm here on Helen High Water in just a couple seconds after these words. And we are back on Helen High Water with Mike Osterholm talking COVID. I mentioned before that Joe Biden was among those people. Also, his wife, Jill Biden, the first lady, both sort of thought that we were done with the virus back around July 4th. You may remember that. But if you don't, let's take a listen to what Joe Biden had to say around Independence Day weekend. This year, the 4th of July is a day of special celebration for we are emerging from the darkness of years a year of pandemic and isolation, a year of pain, fear, and heartbreaking loss. Today, all across this nation, we can say with confidence, America is coming back together. 245 years ago, we declared our independence from a distant king. Today, we are closer than ever to declaring our independence from a deadly virus. We're getting back to, you know, the things that we love, hugging, hugging the people we love, catching up with our friends face to face, smiling at strangers. This is Independence Day weekend, almost, and I'm so glad that we can spend it here with the people who matter to us most. And doesn't the air just smell so much sweeter without our masks? It did. It smelled a lot sweeter without our masks, Mike. And now we have our masks back on. I'm not playing the sound just to mock them, right? They were caught up in a moment, as were a lot of us. I mean, everybody, include myself, of optimism about the possibility that we turned the corner on this virus. And everybody was, you know, natural human inclination to start to kind of get back to normal, given the nightmare we'd gone through for the year prior. But I guess I ask you, in addition to the thing you said before, which was that one of the consequences of that overconfidence, overoptimism was that events got scheduled and that that created a political climate in which it's very hard to walk back from. That's one clear consequence of what that overconfidence and overoptimism brought. Are there other things that you think about that moment when not just Joe and Jill Biden, but as I said, a lot of people, a lot of governors, a lot of humans, a lot of you and me, probably. I don't know about you, but certainly me. We all got a little over our skis. Is there stuff we can point to right now where we say these are other bad consequences that came from that moment where we should have been more cautious and that we should learn from for the future? You know, one of the things I think that hasn't really been understood is just what is the influence of the media and what is the influence of programs like this? And you have done a great job of covering this topic. But as some know, I've often been labeled, unfortunately, as Dr. Doom or Dr. Gloom, because I said right through the spring into the early summer that this virus was not done with us and that we had a sufficient number of people in this country who had not been vaccinated nor having previous infection that we could see a surge just like we saw and we're seeing now. And so for me, well, I'm not surprised where we're at right now at all, but it was really hard to talk about that. And I actually had news media shows, as you know, I've been on a number of them, one of the talking <laughs> heads, where producers would say, you know, we're just not interested in having your message right now. So, uh, you know, we're kind of going to take a pass on that because we're beyond that now. We're okay. 
And, you know, there was no amount of scientific reasoning that would come with that. A number of my colleagues who, again, were, I'll label affectionately the talking heads like myself, who assured the public that, in fact, all the modeling data said the summer was going to be quiet and we might see a little bit of an uptick in the fall. And I think that we all collectively, as a nation, helped each other get to that point of what you heard the president and the first lady say. And it wasn't just politics. It was the media. It was everybody. Yep. And so I think that what we need now is just how do we talk about this without it being Dr. Doom or Gloom? I'll tell you right now, this surge, which is bad, it could get even worse if we see some of these regional areas like the Southeast, Georgia, Kentucky, Tennessee, South Carolina, North Carolina really emerge as they appear to be now, or the Northwest, or the upper Midwest, or even Southwestern United States. We can see this surge prolonged for at least another six to eight weeks but it's going to go down. It's going to go down. And we're going to hit another October, early November time period where I think things will be very quiet in this country, but we'll still have 80 million people left who will not have been vaccinated or protected from this virus by having had it yet. 80 million is a lot of wood for this coronavirus forest fire to burn. So when the next surge happens, are we going to be just as surprised? Are we going to be taken back by that? And I think that's the mindset that we have to start looking at this pandemic in. And clearly on a global basis, that's it. We may not like the data in terms of where it comes from, but Iran has just gone through their fifth surge. Everyone said after the second surge, they were done. they had hit herd immunity. And in this fifth surge, they hit the highest number of cases ever just last week. So I think the world isn't yet prepared to understand that this pandemic is going to go on for a while. And until we do a better job of getting the world vaccinated, We've got to understand we're going to be living with this. Yeah, and I, I will. I promise you, we're going. To, I want to talk about the future in a second. Then that obviously leads into that discussion. I'm going to put a pin in that, and I'm going to come back to it in the last part of the podcast here. But when I think about you, you cited yourself, Doctor Doom, Doctor Gloom. You were out early, even back when things like this mattered, back in you know February of 2020, calling it a pandemic before a lot of people acknowledged that it was a pandemic. And your metaphor there of the forest fire is one you. Started out with the COVID winter, I believe, the coronavirus winter in China. The winter, you change metaphors to the forest fire, and you've had a lot of basically vivid and scary things to say throughout. And I just remembered at some point, it started to be clear as I listened to all the various talking heads, you used the phrase, not me, there were some who were more what I would call clear-eyed because the things that they would say that were scary proved out to be correct within weeks or months thereafter. And some of the more Panglossian talking heads I started to kind of throw them off the sled. I'm like, I don't need to listen to that guy anymore. They're they're too optimistic for me. They turn out to be wrong. Osterholm turns out to be right most of the time. So here's my real, my biggest historical question for you. This is Mm -hmm. the, the one that I think hovers in my mind most of all, as I look back, not as I look forward. Everybody agrees Donald Trump, except for Donald Trump, who thinks Donald Trump did a great job. He's still out there saying on TV that he handled this great and that everything was fantastic under him in handling COVID. But other than Donald Trump, everyone thinks Donald Trump did a horrible job. And the practical question I have to ask you is, as someone who, as you've said, you've been in this business a long time, infectious diseases, flu in particular, influenza expert, someone who spent years and years and years looking at this inside government, outside government. It came along. You were not shocked when it came. Is there anything that a competent scientifically based, rational, and courageous president back in last January, February, March, April, that a president who's the way I just described, obviously the opposite of Donald Trump, is there something a president could have done that would have saved us from this nightmare 
which is what it's been for 18 months, basically, a nightmare that's been unfolding for 18 months and may unfold for many months to come. Is there something a president could have done that would have made this not all go away, but that it was suppressed this in a more yeah. fundamental way so that the course of the pandemic would have been fundamentally altered if we'd gotten at it early in the right ways? You know, this is one of those answers I hate to give because I will have thousands and thousands of emails, which will be very upset with me when they hear this answer. Sorry about that. And the bottom line is, is that in the long run, this virus was going to do what it was damn going to do. And I know that sounds a bit fatalistic, but I think the one thing that we have been successful at is vaccine. And I give the Trump administration credit for helping bring those through. But if you look, I mean, here we are today in this administration, which has, you know, done everything I think that they possibly could. And yet this past week, if you had looked at the top 12 locations in the world as countries for incidents of COVID, five of our states, if they had been countries, would have been in the top 12. Mm. I mean, how can you reconcile that now where we have vaccines and we have a country that is so well aware of this? Yeah. And so part of it is, I think that people just didn't understand, even if you look around the world right now, Australia, look at the challenges, Vietnam. If I had a nickel for every time somebody said to me, well, do it like India's doing, or do it like Sweden, or do it like Vietnam. And now look today, the challenges they have. Even China has been yeah. in large national lockdowns over the last three weeks to try to control this. So this points out just, however, that as this virus unfolds over time, we were never going to put the genie back in the bottle. We never were. The question is, how fast can we get people vaccinated? That's going to be the ultimate answer of where we go with this. And that's not a partisan answer. That just says why pandemics are what they are. I have to just say, you know, my bad days with this virus in terms of public relations started way back in January when I put out a statement on January 20th of 2020, this is going to be a pandemic. Yeah. But it really hit home on March 10th of last year. I was on the Joe Rogan podcast. I remember. And and I said at that time that this was going to last at least 18 months and that there would, at that point, we could have at least easily 480,000 deaths. Yes. You would have thought that I was predicting the return of God knows what. Yeah. I mean, the denial. People flipped out. They did. But, you know, and my challenge was I was wrong because it was 600,000 deaths yeah. in those first 18 months. Yeah. And I think that that's the challenge we have today is people understanding why we need to be better prepared for pandemics. We need to have much more investment in vaccine development that these can be readily administered. John, look at where we're at today. We are still fumbling the ball in trying to get vaccines made for the world. Right. And so I think that the challenge I would have for the future is not just that this president could have done more because in fact, there surely were things that in the short term would have helped. But in the long run picture, this virus is gonna do what it's gonna do minus our ability largely with vaccination and then the distancing issues and so forth. But beyond that, the virus is really in control. We're going to take a break, but I still want to answer the question because I sure. think I know what the right answer is. So much energy, so much passion, so much anger, so much politics around. Was it a lab leak or did it come from outside a lab? I got to tell you, I don't give a shit. I think it's the most meaningless question in the world other than for people's politics. And I just want to know whether you agree with me. It seems to me utterly irrelevant as to whether it came, I mean, not utterly irrelevant, something we, we should know for history, but not meaningful in the way that people have imbued so much meaning into it. Am I wrong about that? No. In fact, this is another example of where nuancing has been absolutely impossible. 
I made a statement way back last year that, in fact, I saw no evidence that this was a man-made virus based on the genetics. But I did not know whether it came from Mother Nature or it was an accidental lab leak. Right. You know, I've been on the National Science Advisory Board for almost eight years back in the 2012 time period when a big debate came up about H5N1 work in the influenza virus in labs. I've always worried about laboratory leaks. So it's not that I think that it couldn't happen. We need to be mindful of that every day in what we do. But it's just as well that this could have been a spillover from the animal population, which reminds us we've got to deal with that too. We have got to be prepared for more and more of these. So I have come down exactly in the same place you are as far as I'm concerned. If it's a bioweapon, we care. Like if it was man-made, unleashed by the Chinese to destroy the world. Yes, we care a lot about that, but there's no evidence of that. Anyway, okay, (laughs) we're going to take this break. We're going to come back, talk about the future. I've been promising a talk about the future. (laughs) This is going to be the scary part of the podcast in a second with Mike Ulsterholm here on Hell and High Water. And we're back for the last part, the future part, the part about like, oh, yeah, you think it's been bad for the last 18 months? It's going to get worse. Uh, Here's Tony Fauci. Let's listen to him talk for a second, and then we'll talk about what's to come with Mike Ostrom. If you allow the virus to freely circulate in 93 million people and give it the opportunity to find vulnerable targets, you give it the opportunity to mutate and form another variant. People say... Well, I'm healthy. The chances of my getting seriously ill is very, very low. So why do I need to worry about getting vaccinated? And the reason is it isn't all about you, because if, in fact, you don't get vaccinated and you do get infected and you're part of the transmission chain and you allow it to infect someone else, you're propagating the ability of that virus to ultimately mutate. And if it does mutate, to something that does evade the vaccine, then we really got a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Then we've really got a problem. So is that coming? I mean, Delta is really bad. It's even worse than we thought it was, Mike, but that's Fauci basically saying why everybody needs to get vaccinated because if we don't get vaccinated, the variants will spread. But the last thing is the thing everyone's scared of, right? Is are we on our way? And again, you pointed out a number of times in this podcast and elsewhere that the virus is going to do what it's going to do. Is the virus kind of inevitably going to mutate eventually towards a thing that is resistant to these vaccines we developed? Well, the long and short answer is we don't know. But let's just look at what evidence we have about what might happen. First of all, I do agree completely with Tony's assessment. For a virus to basically overtake Delta, for example, it's got to be a virus that has some advantage. Is it more infectious? Is it more likely to evade immune protection? Well, evolution is all about viruses or bacteria or any other living species finding an advantage over one of their others. And so the gravity of the situation, meaning which way will something fall, is going to be that the only thing I see happening over time is that a virus either becomes more infectious to overtake Delta or it does develop this ability to evade immunity. And I think we have to understand that that's a possibility. Will it absolutely happen? May not. Maybe what if Delta becomes the king of the block and is still around four or five years from now? I don't know that. But the potential for that to happen is very real. And as much as Tony emphasized the 93 million Americans, which I fully agree with, I worry every day about the 6.4 billion people living in low and middle income countries that have had less than 2% of them having access to the vaccine. Right. That's where we're really going to continue to see the variant spin out. And if there was ever a reason for an international response of emergency proportion, 
It's not just the humanitarian issues. It's all about stopping these variants because we could have, John, one day, one, as Tony described, which could be much worse. Yeah. That question, you know, troubles everyone. And then we pick up Reuters a couple of weeks ago. We read about the Lambda variant. The Lambda variant of the coronavirus, first identified in Peru and now spreading in South America, is highly infectious and more resistant to vaccines than the original version of the virus that emerged from Wuhan, China. Japanese researchers have found. That's from that story ending with the following. So this talks about some research yeah. that's taken place. And it ends with Kai Sato of the University of Tokyo saying Lambda can be a potential threat to human society. So is like, are we already there? I mean, not only in the future, but how worried are you about Lambda? Well, this is an example of uh, why we have to follow this over time, because right now where Lambda is butting up against Delta, Delta is winning. We're not seeing Lambda take off. And so that's, again, what is the ecological advantage? What's the evolutionary pressure that's driving one to become dominant over the other? And that's the question that we can't answer yet. What if Lambda had become more dominant? What would the implications be? But at least what we see so far, Delta is the king of the block and nothing is there to take it down. Mike Osterholm, Dr. Doom, Dr. Gloom, in July of 2020 at a CNBC virtual event, you said this is a very difficult virus to contain. It will never be fully stopped short of a vaccine. And even then it will be slowed down again. We're going to be dealing with this forever. It was one of those things I heard you say in the summer of 2020 that I was like, I got to keep listening to this guy. He also scares the shit out of me. That's maybe why I have to keep <laughs> listening to him. I just think for most normal humans, that is the thing that scares the most. We are going to be dealing with this forever. What did you mean by that? What do you mean by that? What does dealing with it mean? What does forever mean? I think those words are the thing that everybody's now in this Delta era. That's the thing people are now even more than the next variant. The right. possibility that's never going to go away is the thing that terrifies most people. But when a new infectious agent like this evolves from, in this case, the animal kingdom and gets into humans, we will likely have a continued experience with that for as long as humans are around. I mean, take an example of HIV AIDS. You know, when HIV AIDS emerged really on a global basis back in the early 1980s, it had already been in the human population probably for decades in Africa, but not really spreading. When it took off, you know, it caused the horrible, horrible pandemic that it did in a sense of global transmission. Today, it's still here. It's under a much more manageable condition in terms of drugs. We unfortunately still don't have a vaccine. In low and middle income countries, it still is taking a tremendous toll. And we're dealing with it. And most people would probably never even think of HIV AIDS as having been a pandemic at one point, yet it is. Right. What I see happening with this virus is it's not going to kill all of us off or it wouldn't have any place to reproduce. So somewhere there's going to be a static state situation that will exist where maybe it'll become a seasonal virus where having 90 some percent of the population either protected from vaccine or previously having had infection. And then we'll see these peaks every winter or whenever they occur. And so it's not going to be the same as we see with these surges. That happens in the earliest years. And unless somehow we have no long-term memory in terms of our immune systems, we will one day come into a static state with this, much like we did HIV AIDS. And that's what we talk about by forever. So it's not the same with right. these surges like this, but it will nonetheless still be challenging. We're not gonna ever eradicate it out of the human population. As I sat here and I thought about how I was gonna end with you today, I thought, you know, we got Delta, we got Lambda, we've got forever. We've got all those daunting, terrifying words and all of them I think need to be taken seriously. I also hear you saying things about how important it is for us to mount this Marshall Plan really to vaccinate the world. I think that's obviously a good goal. I was gonna ask you what it is that I should take away from this conversation to avoid walking away from here and slitting my wrists. And that was the question I was gonna ask. Mm -hmm. And then I saw your dog, that Australian shepherd, 
you got these beautiful pictures of this beautiful dog for anybody who's not seeing this on video. Is that the only answer here? The only reason to not slit your wrist right now is because dogs are great? <laughs> so how I well, feel like know, that might I, be the well, answer. I wouldn't say not to slit my wrist, but I will have to reaffirm that dogs are great. Uh, you know, they are man's best friend without any question. And this yeah. one in particular was. Yeah. I think the, the message is, what if we didn't have a vaccine that was effective? Can you imagine what we have just gone through right now or what yeah. we've been seeing on a global basis? So to me, my optimism is that we do have vaccines and we're going to make even better vaccines. The question is, do we have the human will to make a difference with these vaccines? Can we make them? Will we make them? Will we distribute them? Will the human population take the vaccines? And so I think that that's the challenge we have right now, which actually makes me more optimistic. You know, imagine if we didn't have the very, very important drugs we have today for HIV AIDS, because we don't have a vaccine yet for that. Imagine when we'd be in a world ravaged by HIV AIDS every day. Yeah. So I'm more optimistic long-term than I am obviously short-term. Short-term <laughs> is where I think we have our real challenges. And so from that perspective, please, world, help us get everyone vaccinated. And again, all I can point out to you is if you don't get vaccinated, you will know potentially a very serious, serious COVID outcome. And if it's not you, it may be one, someone you love. I have talked to too many parents, too many parents who brought the virus home to their young children yeah. where that child ended up in a pediatric intensive care unit. You don't want to be that parent, trust me. Mike Osterholm, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for that little bit of optimism. Thank you for all that realism. And what's the name of that pooch of yours? Max, he's, uh, he's uh, like I said, smarter than I ever was. He's still with us though. He's not, unfortunately. He's I not. miss him right. every day. But there are days I wake up in the middle of the night and I swear to God, I hear him on the side of the bed on the floor. He's still around. <laughs> so same thing about our glorious fife who we just lost. Mike, thank you for taking the time and words to live by and words to listen to those last ones from Mike Osterholm. Thanks a lot, Doc. See you later. Helen High Water is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thanks again to Dr. Michael Osterholm for being with us. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Helen High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Helen High Water. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered the podcast. Justin Chermel handles the research. Jessica Williams checks the facts. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer. And Christian Fidel Castro-Russell is our executive producer. 